Welcome to the Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on the Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? The power of stories. And what I mean by that is both the power of storytelling. When we tell a good story, it gets sticky in the brain of the listener because our brains are wired for story. If you think about all of the old stories from our past, we were an oral tribe. We told each other stories to stay alive. We told each other stories about things that were important to us. And that's how things got passed down, was through storytelling. And so our brains have learned when they hear a story to pay attention. It sticks in our brain different than facts and figures. It's the reason a hundred years ago, when I first started in the world of work, I was trained as a community organizer. And I was trained by the son of the person who trained Cesar Chavez. The gentleman who trained Cesar Chavez, his name is Fred Ross Sr. I was trained by Fred Ross Jr. And Fred Ross Sr. had an expression, which was forget the facts and figures, tell them the story that brought you to the cause. And that has stayed with me for more than three decades because it's so true. Whatever we are trying to enroll somebody in. And we're always trying to enroll somebody in something. I'm a consultant, so I'm often enrolling people in what it is that I'm up to. But I go home and I'm enrolling my husband in taking out the trash. We're enrolling our kids in doing things that they either need to do or get to do or whatever the frame is that we're using. But we're constantly enrolling people in something. And when we can enroll people through a story, it is so much more enrolling. It is so much more powerful because of how our brains are wired to listen to story. The other part of story is the story that we tell ourselves about the world. I found out yesterday, my third friend, so they say bad things come in threes, so this is my third. My third friend was diagnosed with cancer. So I'm declaring a moratorium on cancer, and which I think would be a great thing for the world. <laughs> I will just declare a moratorium on cancer and we'll all be done with that. And what's fascinating to me 
is the story that people are living into around the cancer. We all deal with tragedy in different ways. And one of my people is living into the story of his cancer with, all right, well, this is just something I'm going to live with, but I'm living with it. And so he's actually 10 years into this journey. And it is a miracle. It is remarkable that he is still with us. I am so grateful that he is still with us. So he is an important person in my life. And there have been a lot of things that have happened in the last 10 years. Two of his grandchildren have gone through really hard times. His wife is suffering from quite debilitating dementia. I mean, there's all kinds of circumstances that could be taking him out. And his story about cancer is that he's living with cancer. And so he's just continuing to have a glass half full experience of his life. And I believe it's part of the reason that he's still here. And so I am a big believer in the stories that we create about our lives, the perspectives that we have about the things that we are going through, and then the impact that that has on our circumstances and just about the power of story. So that brings me right to our guest for today. I am delighted to introduce Sarah Elkins to you. I met Sarah via LinkedIn. And so this is one of those times you'll see somebody on LinkedIn and you'll think, man, that person looks cool. Like she seems like she's got it all going on. I would really like to be connected to her. But then we all have this story about ourselves, which is sometimes like I got it going on too. We have those days and we have those occurrences of ourselves. And other times we have the occurrence of ourselves, like I'm just a little schmo who's doing whatever it is that I'm doing. Like, would she even reach back out to me? But I put on my big girl panties and I decided to be brave. And I reached out to Sarah and I noticed her because she was doing this conference. She created a conference called No Longer Virtual, which brings LinkedIn connections together face-to-face to learn, to grow, and to support each other's professional goals. And I thought that was so cool. I was just amazed to see then that her focus is on storytelling as the key to effective communication. So I reached out and she reached back And our first call was filled with laughter and head nods at our common experiences with workplace miscommunication. And I knew that we would create both a relevant and an entertaining podcast episode together because there's so much synergy with all the things that we talk about here at the cost of not paying attention, and what it is that Sarah is up to. So without further ado, welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Janine. Thanks so much for inviting me on your podcast. I love to talk about storytelling, of course. And I love this whole concept of 
what are we not paying attention to and what is it costing us? And I would love to just start with the story of No Longer Virtual because the thing that I think we don't pay attention to enough is not just the stories that we're telling and how that affects our internal messages about ourselves, but how we're telling our stories impacts how other people perceive us clearly. Are we a victim? Are we brave? And the way we tell stories about other people affects their identity, especially our children. So I'm going to wrap this all up into a couple of stories. And the first one is the no longer virtual story. It was in 2016. I was part of, I don't know how I found this group, but I somehow became part of this publishers and bloggers group on LinkedIn. And that was the year that at least three of that group of about 18 of us were named LinkedIn top voices. And I still don't know how I ended up in this group. I wasn't one of them, but I had been blogging on the platform and had gotten a pretty good following at this point. And so somehow I lucked into this group, this tribe of LinkedIn writers that were just phenomenally talented. One of them was Karthik Rajan and he's a tech guy, but he had shifted into marketing because he loved how data told a story. And he would write these beautiful stories about growing up in India. He lives in Austin now or Houston. I think he lives in Houston now, but he just had this amazing style in his writing. And he wasn't one of the LinkedIn top voices, but we had connected so strongly. And I loved his writing so much that we decided to jump on a phone call. And I had done this with a few of my LinkedIn connections at that point. So it wasn't that big a deal, except we scheduled it for a Friday afternoon about four o'clock. I knew my boss wouldn't be in the office. And when Karthik's phone called mine, I saw his name pop up on my phone. And I was absolutely blushing and giddy, like a kid, like a celebrity was calling me. And I remember exactly that thought like, oh my gosh, he's calling me. Like, (laughs) who am I, right? Who am I to have this celebrity calling me? And I got this big smile on my face. I was so excited to talk to him. And I picked up the phone and we ended up talking for two hours, laughing, sharing stories. And one thing that just struck me was how kind he was, how thoughtful he was in his words, and the way he complimented my writing But not just my writing, the transformation of my writing from earlier when he first started reading my stuff to where I was at that point. He saw the incremental and dramatic improvement over that time. And to me, that was just so encouraging and enlightening because I didn't necessarily see my style change. So we get off the phone and I am grinning. I had walked home. Luckily, that was my commute at the time. I could walk home. And I was talking to my husband that evening as a Friday night and I was making our Shabbat dinner. We're Jewish and I had made some challah dough, the braided bread that we eat. And I was cooking some dinner and I was yammering on and on about this guy, Karthik, and how wonderful he was in this awesome conversation we had. And it was so thoughtful and blah, 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 blah. And I wake up on Saturday and I'm still thinking about the conversation throughout my day as I'm playing with my boys who were little then. And then Sunday, I had scheduled a call with Chris Spurvey and Heather Younger, who are also still some of my biggest connections on LinkedIn that I absolutely adore. So we jump on a call that Sunday evening, and I'm on fire at that point. And I said, would you guys show up if I had a conference that brought our LinkedIn voices together 
would you show up for that even to facilitate, but I couldn't pay you? Would you do that? And their expressions were priceless. Huge grins on their faces. Absolutely. Yes. Sign (laughs) us up. Send us the date. Yes, we'll be there for sure. And we're talking, Chris is in Newfoundland, Canada. That's a big trip to come to the US, especially I didn't know where I would have it or what would happen or when it would be, but they were on board. And when I reached out to Karthik, he said, yes, I'm there. So in February of 2017, we connected in downtown Atlanta at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. They gave me the most ridiculous deal, Janine. It was $149 a night at the Ritz-Carlton in downtown Atlanta. And yeah, well, it's February, but now, of course, people meet every time of year. So it's not as big a deal. But in 2017, we were putting business in their hands that they wouldn't have otherwise had on a Thursday and Friday in February. So we got together. There were 23 of us in the room and the sessions were outstanding. And I remember vividly telling everyone all of the housekeeping on Thursday night, what to expect for Friday. This is the time. This is what we're going to do. Here are the sessions. My husband, Bob, and I just got a recommendation for a Chinese restaurant that's literally a block away. So we're going to walk down. And if I could get a show of hands, now I hadn't planned any kind of dinner because I wanted to leave room for introverts to go find their space and find their people. So I hadn't made any plans, but I said, we're going to go down there at about 7.30. Could I see a show of hands of anybody who might want to join us so that I can call them ahead and let them know if we're going to have a larger group? And I'm thinking six people, eight people. Almost every hand in the room went up. (laughs) The only one that didn't was somebody who had already made plans with a family friend who happens to live in Atlanta. Otherwise, she would have joined us too. So 22 of us go out to dinner and we're all at these two long tables in this Chinese restaurant that accommodated us. And by the way, I sent them a thank you note because they were so accommodating. And I will never forget sitting at the end of one of the tables and I'm just trying to breathe at this point. I am so full of electricity at this point. I don't even know what to do because I'm thinking that was so amazing. How am I going to make tomorrow just as good? And I'm stressing about it. And I remember hearing somebody at the other table talking and she said, next year, we should think about blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And in my head, I'm like, fuck. (laughs) Next year? I have to do this again? again? (laughs) (laughs) But they're already talking about next year. So that's one of those stories that when I tell that story, people are enrolled, right? They are engaged. They want to see what that's like for themselves. And part of what's so great about that story is that both for anyone who might be listening, who would love this kind of thing, they're like, count me in. Like, I want to be there next year. And it also is a great story about, you and I were just talking before we started recording about stretching and about doing things that are outside of our comfort zone and doing things that are a little bit scary or maybe a lot of it scary. And the story that we create about that, both like, can I do this? And like, who am I to be doing this? Like we create all of those stories, but then as we're doing it, we also then get to create the story of, I... I'm a motherfucking powerful (laughs) magnet. And look at what 
I created and look at what is being created, like beyond me, look at what is getting created. That's awesome. And so what I love about that story is that it encourages those of you who might be listening, who might want next year or this year to come to No Longer Virtual, to get in touch with Sarah Elkins on LinkedIn and let her know that you want to be in the queue for potential participants and what you might be interested in contributing to her tribe. And if you're thinking about something that you are excited about, go for it and let us know and lean into the people who are in your tribe for that support and encouragement. So imagine, Janine, if I had told that story in a different way, because I had baggage from previous stories. So I'm going to give you an example. I was working with a coaching client a few years ago. And she said, I'm so proud of myself. I did this thing. And she was telling me about programming a thermostat. She's in her 70s. And she programmed this thermostat with her Bluetooth on her phone. And she was so proud of herself. And she's working with me because she wants to figure out what she's going to do next in her life. She's retired twice. And she's like, I just don't know what I want to do next. I need some clarity. So that's why she hired me. This is a couple of years ago. So she's so excited about this thing that she did. And she said, and all I could think was, see, mom, I am smart. (laughs) Oh my God. That's both funny and crushing. Yes. I said, wow, how old is your mom? She's like, well, she passed a few years ago. I said, how long ago? She said, oh, probably 10 years ago. I said, so she's gone. She's been gone 10 years. You're 72 and you are still holding on to the story of your childhood with her. And her not thinking that you're smart. Yes. So here's, I said, why do you think she thought you weren't smart? What happened? And she told me this story. She said, when I was about 10 years old, my mom told me that I wasn't very bright, that I was very sweet. And so I'd marry well, but I just wasn't very bright. And I said, wow, ouch. She's like, yeah. And I said, well, tell me about that. Where were you? Where were you when that happened? She said, what do you mean? I said, were you in your house? Were you in the car? Were you sitting in a restaurant? She said, well, we were probably at my kitchen table. I said, was your twin sister there? She said, yeah. So the two of you, you're 10 years old, probably fifth grade. You're sitting in the kitchen at the table. What is your mom doing? Oh, she's probably prepping for dinner. So you have two other siblings. So she is a mom of four kids and she's probably prepping for dinner. What's she wearing? She said, oh, she always wore an apron in the kitchen. This would have been the the (laughs) 50s. Yeah, this would have been the 50s. And she said she was always wearing an apron. I said, can you see her? Can you imagine her in the kitchen? You're sitting at the table. What do you think happened right before that? Did you show her grades? Were you doing homework and having trouble? What were you working on? And I said, I know that you are a great reader. And usually that means math didn't come easily for you. And she's like, yeah, math didn't come easily for me at that point in my life. She said, yeah, it was probably, I don't know, maybe I was doing math homework and having a hard time or something. I said, okay, so let's put this all together. You're sitting at this table with your twin sister. You're not doing great at math. You're probably really good at history and English, right? She said, yeah, I I always got good grades in those classes. And your mom sees you struggling with math. And she says, wow, you're not very bright. Because all she's seeing is you struggling with math. She's not seeing the rest of your grades. She's not paying attention to the other aspects of how bright you are, like 
how conscious you are of the people around you, which is a different kind of intelligence, right? All she sees, all she's seeing in that moment is that your math skills aren't 100%. Was she good at math? She said, oh yeah, she was really good at math. Oh, interesting. So tell me about your mom at that time. Was she happy? And she's like, oh, I don't think so. I said, why? She said, well, her sister got a college degree and she didn't. And she was left doing some bookkeeping for my father's business and raising kids. And she could have done so much more. She had the capacity, the intelligence. She could have done more. Said, oh, wow. It sounds like she was really disappointed with how her life was going. Dissatisfied. She said, yeah, I'm sure she was highly dissatisfied. And I said, so let's just put this out there. Is it possible when you think about it as a fly on the wall, as an observer of the story, instead of being an active participant, you're an observer of the story, you're watching this happen. Is it possible that first of all, she was projecting her dissatisfaction on her two 10-year-old twins on those girls? She's projecting this dissatisfaction onto you. And second, is she maybe trying to protect you from having high expectations for your life because she was so disappointed with hers? Is it possible she was trying to protect you in her way from having expectations that were beyond what your capacity or your role in life might be? Is that possible? And she got so quiet, Janine, like so quiet. I thought maybe we were frozen because it was a Zoom conversation because it was a couple of years ago, (laughs) nothing in person. And she said, oh, I said, I think this is the end of our session because you have a lot to think about and process and marinate on. Here's what I want you to do in the next 48 hours. I want you to pick two people that don't know this story, not a sibling, not anyone in your immediate family. Pick two people who don't know the story and tell the story from the perspective of an observer instead of a participant. Tell it at least twice. If you could tell it more, even better. But in the next 48 hours, tell that story the way you told it to me, including those observations, those potential observations of this woman that insulted you so dramatically that you're holding on to it 60 years later. And I said, I want you to think about taking responsibility for your internal messages starting now because she's gone. You haven't lived with her in 50 years. It's been 50 years since you lived in her house and you are still letting her define your internal messages. And this one conversation, this one story, this one moment in time when maybe she had had a fight with her husband or she had gotten frustrated about something that she couldn't do or who knows what was happening. And how many times was she actually supportive, but you didn't hear it because you only heard this disconnect. It's a cognitive bias. So she has this idea of what she was like and everything else that she saw and experienced was going to confirm that. It's a dissonance when something comes in, when I have this story about myself, I'm not very smart. And then this other data comes in that says, I am smart. Actually, my brain doesn't hear it because it doesn't confirm. It doesn't work with my confirmation bias. So it's dissonant. And we literally don't hear it because it doesn't confirm the story that we have. Way our brains are wired. Like, you know, they're wired to help us, but often they work against us. 
And this woman is brilliant. This woman graduated from nursing school at 40 something because she had always wanted to be a nurse. She went back to nursing school, graduated summa cum laude. This is not a not very bright woman, right? And so she had all this evidence piling up about how smart she was. All this evidence. But like you said, she has this cognitive dissonance. It doesn't confirm what she knows to be true about herself. So it comes back to that mindfulness. When you have a thought like that, you have to ask yourself that question. Pay attention. This is the cost of not paying attention. Pay attention to that thought and ask yourself, is that actually true? Do I have any evidence that contradicts that? Do I have a lot of evidence that contradicts that? (laughs) Maybe it's time to reconsider that thought about myself. Speaking of story, I mean, one of the reasons that lines from movies stick in our heads is because they are telling a story. And so there's this great line from Pretty Woman, which I have complicated feelings about that movie, but nonetheless. Me too. (laughs) And Julia Roberts says, why is the hard stuff easier to believe? And she's talking about herself and she's talking about how the messages that we're not very good, that we're not enough, whatever that is, fill in the blank. We're not pretty enough. We're not smart enough. We're not strong enough. We're not we don't work hard enough, we're not good enough provider, whatever the messages are that we are getting, our brain is wired to be more sticky to those negative messages. And so our opportunity is to get curious, is to pay attention, is to train our brain to listen for messages that may be different from the message that we have decided is the story about ourselves. It's on a loop. Right? It's on that loop in your brain. It's that thing. It's that voice in your head. Like an earworm, like a really bad song that sticks in there. (laughs) And you're like, what do I have to do to get rid of this song? Well, you listen to a song that you like. You listen to a song that an earworm wouldn't be such a tragedy. Exactly. Right? So if the song in your head is, I'm not good enough, or I'm not whatever enough, fill it in for yourself. What are the songs about yourself that actually you love and that you know in your heart of hearts are true? And it's exactly the same thing for an organization, just writ large, because organizations create these stories about themselves as well. And we create stories about the organizations that we work with, that we work for, that we uh, support, that we don't support. We have stories about how we operate in the world, and they are extremely powerful. So this is so juicy. Please continue. I love that you just said that about organizations. And one of the biggest things we're not paying attention to in organizations are the stories our employees are telling, because they have the potential to be the greatest ambassadors, the walking ambassadors for your company. And if they're not telling good stories, whether it's internally or to their neighbor or to their sister or to the guy at the corner bar when you're playing pool and drinking a beer. Or to your customers. Or to your customers. (laughs) I remember being yelled at by a boss when I worked. I worked at IHOP in Fort Collins, Colorado when I was in college just for a few months because the boss was so abusive, I ended up leaving. 
But I remember in front of customers, he was yelling at me. And three of the regulars that had started coming in that I was serving walked out. They said, we're not coming back. We can't tolerate you treating your employees this way. And they walked out. And I remember thinking, wow, he just lost business, like regular business because of this. And what stories are they telling their friends? Oh, we're never going back to that IHOP because we heard this guy do this. So every single employee has the potential to be your ambassador. And if they're telling stories of how they were supported and treated with respect, then that translates to the bottom line. Absolutely. And especially in the current recruitment issues that people are facing, it is hard to recruit employees right now. And if your employees are bad-mouthing you because they feel like they're mistreated or you're being rigid about coming back to the office or you're being rigid about how often they have to check their email, expecting them to work on weekends, those are the stories they're telling the people that you're trying to recruit. Yeah, it's fascinating. I have a grocery store that I really like going to. It's a union grocery store. And right now they are working without a contract. And this has happened a couple of other times in the couple decades that I've been going to this grocery store. And it is always such a bummer to be in the store, especially when they are in this phase because the employees are talking about it and they are talking about it with the customers. And because of what I do, I'm happy to engage in a conversation about this. And I leave feeling like, ah, I don't want to go grocery shopping next week because or tomorrow or whenever, whenever I need to go grocery shopping again. Or I wonder if there's another store that I can get my stuff from until this is over. Correct. Until this is over. And I mean, what is, is that if I do that, if I find another store, the likelihood is I'm not going back, really. And so every time this happens and I'm in there, I keep thinking like, who can I talk to at the store? Because there's a real impact that is happening with customer loyalty and customer experience because of what's happening with their employees. And it's a... (laughs) It's ugly. It's ugly. Yeah. And I think the saddest thing, and we talked about this in the very first conversation before when we first met, we talked about how sad it is that there are potential ways to address these things that aren't being considered in terms of communication. And I get it. Sometimes the employers are kind of stuck because the cost to employ people has gone up so dramatically and not just salary. We're talking about all kinds of insurance issues and not benefits, but workers' comp and unemployment insurance. And cost of their materials are going up. So the budget in general and transportation, they can't charge more than $6 for a gallon of milk at this point. So they may lose money because the transportation costs have gone up so much. So the cost of their products have gone up. So I get it. It can be hard. Put that out there. Let your employees help you resolve these problems. Some of your employees may be perfectly happy to go to part-time as long as they'll cover their benefits which would be a significant decrease in cost, even if they're covering their benefits, because some people would be happy with flexible schedules and coming in three days a week instead of five and working 30 hours instead of 40. I mean, 
let your employees help you solve these problems because they have some ideas. Right. Enroll your employees, you know, really. And that takes a level of communication and it takes a level of what feels like vulnerability, what feels like risk, what feels like letting them see what's going on behind the curtain. It may even take that humility, right? It may even take like, I know that the CEO of this company had a huge salary last year or got a big bonus last year or whatever that is. The employees are talking about it. So just pretending that that didn't happen, that's not helpful. And maybe you can help them understand why that happened. Like. I get it. On the one hand, he got $20 million. And on the other hand, we're telling you we don't have any money. There is a disconnect there. And how can we talk through that? Because just ignoring it is not helping. It is enabling the employees to create a big story about how you are a heartless company who doesn't care anything about their frontline workers and only cares about the C-suite. That's the easy story. To create around that. It's a universal story. Everybody knows that story. Everybody's got that song in their head. And if you can help them understand, like, what are all the things that this executive had to do that made it such that it made sense to give them a bonus? Like, yeah, we can argue all day about the difference in wages between what frontline employees make and what C-suite employees. I know there may not be a good answer for that. <laughs> there may not be. And just ignoring it is not helping the situation. How can we create some communication in the face of all of this? And if I hear one more of those managers saying it's so hard to find good employees, I just, <laughs> I'm going to strangle them. Retention is way cheaper. I mean, even at that level, retaining a cashier that already knows all the codes, has good customer service and rapport with their current customers, that cashier, when they leave and you're trying to hire a new one to replace them, that cashier, that whole turnover, if you look at Lou Adler's work, he does a lot of data collection around this. That one position may cost you $20,000 for a cashier at a grocery store. $20,000. Right. Just to replace them. And not just the lost salary, but lost productivity and potentially lost customers because they don't have that relationship anymore. The people that you go into that store to see aren't there anymore. There's nothing to keep you at that grocery store. That's true. Right. If Charles isn't there anymore. Right. And especially if he left because of this. Okay. Well, that's my answer. And I can tell you there have been some restaurants here in this little town of Helena, Montana, that have gone under because they couldn't get people to work for them because they had that reputation. And I know there are people that don't care and they'll show up at a restaurant. If it's a good restaurant, it's their favorite food. They have their favorite bottle of wine or whatever. They'll go there anyway. But I can tell you there are a lot of us. And when we hear that reputation about how they treat people, I'm not going back. No matter how good the food is, I'm not going back. One of my ways for rejuvenation and recovery that I build into my weeks is at least every two weeks I get a massage and it helps keep me grounded. It helps me think better. I mean, there are a lot of benefits for me that make me 
be happy. Right. It's an investment. Absolutely. Actually to spend the money. It's an investment in myself. And there was a massage place that was really close to my house and they gave great massages and quite inexpensive. And one day, and I would always go with my best friend and we would have this wonderful time getting massages and then we would go for coffee or lunch or whatever. And this one time, my masseuse got a call from somebody who it sounded like he was the boss. And this was all happening in a foreign language. So I couldn't really tell what was being said. And I was lying on the table. And he took the call. And she took the call. That's number one flag. (laughs) Right. He was yelling at her. And my experience is normally, I mean, I'd been going there for months. She wouldn't have taken the call while she was doing a massage on me but it was her boss who was calling. So she took the call. He was screaming at her. She's then working on me. And I can tell, I can't see her. I'm lying face down. I can tell that she's crying. You can feel the tension. It's going into your body. Right. Now her sadness, her frustration, her demoralization, whatever her feelings are, are all now being <laughs> being massaged into my body. Like, okay, this is not only a waste of time and money, this is counterproductive. And I never went back. And I would go with my best friend. So this is two clients who are coming at least every two weeks. And we have never gone back. That was a year and a half ago. And we had been going for at least a year. And it's not just the two of you. You're not going to recommend them. It's then all the other people that I've told, (laughs) don't go there. And worse, you're just going to simply not recommend them. You can tell that story and people will be like, well, I'm not going there. But even more, you're not going to recommend them. And they think, oh, it's just a couple clients. We'll replace them. People come because we're good and cheap. But eventually that catches up to you. And they're going to lose her. If she finds another opportunity to massage somewhere else where they treat her well, and the cost comes back to the cost. It's not just lost clients. It's serious money. Wow. Full circle. (laughs) the cost of not paying attention. And that's all about the stories. I think one of the costs of not paying attention to the stories you're telling is that you're not giving yourself an opportunity to find patterns and be self-reflective. If you're just telling these stories without thought behind them, why am I telling the story? How am I telling the story? How am I being perceived as a result of telling the story? If you're not curious about those things, You're not being self-reflective. And I guarantee your relationships with people will always be dissatisfying. It's so interesting. I have a friend who went through a bad marriage and would always tell this story about the ending of his marriage. And he would always tell it exactly the same way with exactly the same words. And I heard him tell this story for years. And it was a very disempowering story. And he was definitely the victim in this story. And eventually I said to him, are you clear about the fact that A, the reason that we tell stories is to imprint them? You are imprinting in your brain and in the brain of all these other people to whom you are telling this story. Including a potential date. Like, can you imagine if he's telling this story to a date and she's like, Hell no, I'm going to go the other way. You are a victim of your circumstances. That's not a powerful place to stand. And what if you just either knocked off telling, what if you just 
quit telling this damn story because it already happened 15 years ago. Like this did not happen yesterday. You don't need to process this. So what if you just stopped telling the story? And what if you created a new story about the end of your marriage for yourself? You don't ever need to tell anybody any story about the end of your marriage. It was 15 years ago. And for yourself, like stop reinforcing that you were or are a victim because the more we tell the story, the more we reinforce that this is who we are today. Not that it's who we were then, which is how we think about it. What our brain understands is that this is who we are. And then we continue to see the world through that lens. So knock that shit off. And we lose all our personal responsibility. It's somebody else's fault. As long as you're blaming somebody else for your dissatisfaction in life, you will not be satisfied ever. I mean, seriously, I keep looking at these people that blame other people for their circumstances. And yes, I get it. There is absolutely a reason to be frustrated. I think about racism and the ridiculous policies and laws that have created such an unjust system. And it drives me crazy. And as long as I'm blaming somebody else for my circumstances, it takes away my personal responsibility to take control and do what I know I need to do to change something for my personal life. I can't change how these laws were written 100 years ago or even 20 years ago, which is just sickening to me. makes me vomit a little in my mouth. But these laws that are currently being written against transgender people and against women's rights, all these things are currently being written. As an individual in Helena, Montana, I can't change those laws right now. But what I can do is take responsibility for me. And I can say, this is not okay with me. And I can support other people who are struggling under those laws. I can go to the anti-foundation, the A-U-N-T-I-E, helping women in Texas right now and other states that are enacting these ridiculous laws. So by saying it's somebody else's fault, I remove all of my personal responsibility to take my own actions and do things for myself and find that satisfaction. Amen, sister. All right. So I just looked at the clock and realized this is getting to be quite a long podcast. So we should, (laughs) it feels like we just started talking and I think we're going on 50 minutes. So we should probably go ahead. We may need to cut out a little bit here and there. Or we may need to have you back and have another conversation (laughs) in the future. So this has been wonderful about the power of story, about the way that we reinforce, recreate, about our opportunity to shape our experience in life, about our capacity for change or lethargy, depending upon the stories that we create about ourselves and our circumstances. Sarah, thank you for your wisdom and your insights and your storytelling ability and your ability to illuminate in places where maybe we weren't paying attention before. Thank you. It was absolutely my pleasure. I am Janine Hamner-Holman, and this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time.
On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been the cost of not paying attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams. I'm beginning to think I'm beginning